difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here again with... Tosh Robinson. Genevieve Kosky. Scott Tobias. In our last episode, we discussed Little Women, directed by Gillian Armstrong. You'll be forgiven a sense of deja vu as we're talking about Little Women again, this time the version directed by Greta Gerwig. Though both are true in their own way to Louisa May Alcott's novel, there's no mistaking one for another. Gerwig fills the film with young actors who've emerged over the past few years, including Shorsha Ronan, Florence Pugh, and Timothy Chalamet. Emma Watson counts as the old hand here thanks to her years playing Hermione in the Harry Potter films. But beyond the varying 2019 casting choices, Gerwig makes the daring decision to fracture the chronology of the story. The film opens deep in the novel with Ronan's Joe March, already a struggling writer in New York, then flashes back seven years to her family's Civil War experiences, a time defined by an absent father and other challenges. But this is no mere framing device. The film then flashes back freely, allowing past and future to comment on each other. What emerges is a kind of bold remix of a familiar story that stays close to the original narrative, but allows viewers to see it in a new light. We'll talk it over after the break. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Ow, Joe! I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe? To be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says... My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. You are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. So everyone, um, Tasha last. What was was everyone's impression of Little Women? I'll I'll, I'll say I've seen it twice. I loved it even more the second time than the first time. You know, the first time I, I, I think Scott, I think you had a similar experience, mm-hmm. but I was, I was admiring it by it. I was moved by it, but this time I was, I was just really swept up on it and knowing where it was going and knowing what portions of the story she was going to juxtapose with one another made it an even deeper experience. I, I, I'm a big fan of this film. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's exactly right. I, of course, really enjoyed it the first time. Uh, second viewing enhanced my experience all the more because I was just situated in the narrative. I knew what I, I went into Little Women not knowing that she was messing with the chronology right. at all. Yeah, and, so, and so I was, so there was that point. I don't think it's, I like, had a sort of a, are we watching the wrong reel? Yeah. <laughs> moment yeah I mean, it's, it's not like it's not like the film is unclear at any point or that it deliberately tries to confuse the audience. I don't think it does any, any of that. But the fact is, if you have a structure where you're going back and forth in time, you are constantly reorienting yourself and saying, okay, this stuff has happened, but this stuff hasn't happened. It's kind of a hustle to kind of, uh, which uh, a productive hustle, but a hustle. Being seeing it a second time, knowing what it was going to do, helped me appreciate the purposefulness of this adaptation. Uh, Gerwig's engagement with the material, what she really felt was important to emphasize and maybe appreciate how the emotional beats of the film, the big moments, like hit so as hard as they possibly can because of the way the movie is structured. So I, I was uh, hugely impressed by this movie. Genevieve, what'd you think? Do you like it? <laughs> I mean. 
of course, as I... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Tasha. I, I know you hate being the the odd woman out here, but no, I mean, I there just... was there was no chance of me not liking Little Women, directed by Greta Gerwig. It's just I think it's impossible. But so instead, I will talk about the first moment I cried in this film, not the last, <laughs> but the first moment I cried, which was basically the first scene. <laughs> um, like cause I I knew from hearing Scott and Keith you talk about like in the discussion of doing this pairing and whether it was it would be fruitful to discuss two versions of the same story. Hearing you talk about the different approach this took, I knew that there was something going on with the chronology. But that opening scene with her and the publisher by Tracy Letts, where she's like selling her first story, you know, I got, I welled up a little, you know, just because it's, it's Joe selling a story. It's, it's an exciting moment uh, for the character, for a character that I know well and, and care about. But what really sent me over the edge is the scene that comes immediately after that, where Joe leaves and starts running at full speed through the streets of New York. And running is, I mean, Joe is a character who runs. Louisa May Alcott loved running. Like, that is like a specific character trait Joe has that is taken directly from Louisa May Alcott. And it's we see it in the 94 version, you know, but just like that full flat out run where you see the pants under her skirt. And it just, it felt like... In that moment, it was like my nostalgic feelings about Little Women, a realization of what Gerwig was doing with this material, and my associations with Gerwig as a filmmaker. I mean, like her characters all all run, you know, <laughs> Lady, Lady Bird yeah. has an amazing sort of running scene to Francis Ha. I know that's not no, some, I, something I, she... It totally reminded me of Francis Ha, yeah, the way yeah. it was framed and everything. Yeah, so it's just like that image of Shersha Ronan just running full speed through the streets of New York, it just like immediately distilled what this movie was going to be for me, and I got so excited and just started sobbing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, honestly kind of didn't let up for a good portion of the film. I was very dehydrated by the time that this, this movie was over. You um, need some pickled wine. Yeah, I think that probably would have exacerbated the problem. But uh, I've seen it twice, too. I've seen it twice with my fiancé, who had zero connection to Little Women. He uh, did not even know that Beth died. Like, he knew nothing about the story. <laughs> and was also, I'm not embarrassing him by sharing this, was also in tears for mm. most of the movie, like, really connected to it as well, which just made me love it even more that I could share it with him that way. So Tasha. <laughs> I, I don't have a deep and burning uh, desire to not be the odd woman out. Mm-hmm. I do sometimes wish that I had the kinds of emotional connections yeah. to movies that you have. I like, wish you had the emotional connection I had to this movie. It was really great. <laughs> like I'm still just glowing. I'm just a, not a person who weeps through movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's not how, I, like even at my most emotionally engaged, that's just not a response that I'm built for. And in this case, I thought it was fine. There's been so much said about this film and uh, its transcendent qualities, and it just didn't really transcend anything for me. It reminded me sort of visually and emotionally, again, going back to Pride and Prejudice, specifically of Joe Wright's version of Pride and Prejudice and Atonement, just in the the, like the quality of the light. It's really a, a very rich and beautiful movie. And watching it in close proximity with the 94 version makes me very, very interested in like Gerwig's specific choices. I feel like this is a very consciously calculated movie in terms of bringing out some really interesting things in the text in the same way you can get a little tired of a Shakespeare play, but like seeing a new director take it on Mm -hmm. makes you see a lot of things differently. But most of my interest in this film is 
is academic, is theoretical, is intellectual. Most of it is fascination with a lot of the stuff that Gerwig has said about it, about what it was like getting it made and all of the things that she wanted to put into it that she wanted people to get out of it. A lot of it is just in kind of a fascination with the structure of it, but I don't feel that like emotional power. I definitely get engaging with it on an intellectual level because I that is one of the things that was exciting to me, as I mentioned, sort of the realization of, oh, she's doing something really interesting here with a, with a story that I know really well, and that's exciting. I think where the emotional side of that comes in for me is related to what I was talking about in the first half about this being kind of a coming of age story and dancing on the line between childhood and adulthood and the the emotions that come with that. And I think the way that this little woman is made with that cross cutting between the past and future makes those emotional beats even more explicit than when it is told in a linear fashion. And there's sort of the part A and the part B, which was actually two different books. Uh, what is it? Good Wives, I think, is the mm-hmm. is the second part. Yeah. So by mixing it up in this way, it allows the film to, I think, dig into the themes of the book and the emotional beats that, again, I connect to in a, in a deeper way. So that's where that excite that emotional excitement came from for me. But I, I definitely understand if you don't have that sort of emotional connection, still being able to engage with it as sort of an interesting adaptation exercise. I mean, that's the thing with this movie is like you, uh, and, and that was the question that I had that, that the 94 version didn't answer sufficiently, which is, the, which is where is the filmmaker in this work? You know, are you just adapting this material or are you engaging with this material and making it yours? And I think you, it, it's so, so Gerwig so firmly answers that question in a way that Armstrong doesn't and like in you know in the, the in the way that she frames it as she does with the publisher and then with her back with him again at the end and the, and, and particularly I guess we'll get into that in a little bit but particularly the the way the ending is changed and framed in its own way is just so mm-hmm. brilliant oh my god that <laughs> ending well, you so need great. to talk about that so ending. great mm-hmm. but I mean like that's something like like that is like somebody who is like you know, I mean, this book has been adapted so many times. I think Gerwig just seems to take that as a starting point. It's like, I can just, I'm taking the training wheels off and I'm just going to like really engage with this in a very personal and critical, you know, and thoughtful way. And and uh, I just think the whole movie just has this vividness and this like pop to it uh, because of that level of engagement from her as a writer and director. It also, the structure allows her to revisit what I thought was one of the strongest elements of Lady Bird, which is a movie I was loving all along, but when it hits the final section about her moving away and then looking back on the place that she came from, that's kind of what this chronology allows uh, Joe to do, and this sort of this this feeling of intense nostalgia for the place that made you, but you know you had to leave behind, and is in the irretrievable past anyway. Splitting it up the way she does really brings that out, and I think that feeling it just wraps up the film in a way that makes it really emotionally engaging. We talk a lot as critics about book to film adaptations that just kind of lie there on the screen that are just too literal and too straightforward. It feels like this one could be held up like is a screenwriting and directing and just decision making class in how to adapt a book while keeping all of those kind of checklist elements that you're mentioning that, uh, you know, it's not Little Women if it doesn't have this, 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 and this, but at the same time, just imposing a, a, a series of bold decisions on them that 
doesn't change the story per se, but does change how we engage with it. I think it's also interesting as a period story because it's a very modern, uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, sure. you know, and it's not a whole lot of effort on Gerbic's part to remain accurate to the, like, the visual specifics of mid 19th century, the way that there is in the, the 94 version. I mean, like these are pretty, like the costuming is a very like, little women by way of anthropology sort of mm. styling, you know, it's not, there's not an effort to like make it seem like a direct translation of what's in the source text onto the screen. There is a sort of, there's a modern sensibility to it that feels very of a piece with Gerwig as a filmmaker, but that doesn't battle the story in any way. It's it's a very interesting balance she strikes with the period element here because it does feel, it makes it feel fresh without making it feel like it's not Little Women anymore. She doesn't go full Marie Antoinette on this thing. Right, no, no. (laughs) Yeah, they don't even get to eat cakes. They pack the cakes up and take them off to their poor neighbors. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I was more thinking like just throwing in some contemporary songs. And, oh well, yeah, that too. Yeah. Yeah. So we should talk about the performances too. And I, I and I, I made an omission um, by leaving out Eliza Scanlon among them, a list of of, uh, mm-hmm. of the cast, and she's very good as Beth. We talked about the, in the previous episode about how Beth needs some sort of animating force beyond dying to make her a more more yeah. interesting character. And I, I think Scanlon does that very well. But I think everyone does does it really well too. I mean, Gerwig does not split. Amy and and uh, and two two, two actresses and, mm-hmm. and and Florence Pugh is uh, remarkably convincing. As a she's so good. Yeah. And as a grown up woman too. Yeah, she's 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 so good. She's having a great year. Uh, well, that's the thing. Like this is this is another one that where again Joe is you know centered in the story very much Gerwig's avatar you would mm-hmm. think, and yet man that character you know amy just really that is a, such a strong performance and, mm-hmm. that, and again that continuity of having the same actress play her convincingly at different ages yeah it's really that, that i mean the, that the, the, the difference maker i mean she's uh, you know it's, there's a little bit of just like she's a little stranger as a young as a very young yeah they just got such to, a husky voice that she just like reads more mature than 12 years old no yeah. matter what they don't try to young her up but 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 when her introduction to laurie is i'm amy yeah it's just, yeah it's like, okay that's i'll buy this i'll, I'll buy her I think the hair I'm does a lot Laurie of work a cast too. of my foot <laughs> <laughs> The sequence where he proposes to her and she pushes him away and says, you know, I've basically I've been in my sister's shadow my whole life. I'm not going to take her cast offs like that is such a strong and defining moment for that character that you don't find in the in the other version. It's such a step away from that treacly sentimental quality of you know we're all sisters and we all love each other and even when we're mad because somebody does something absolutely and utterly unforgivable we'll forgive them the very next day i liked the ferocity of that it was i felt like maybe something the 94 version could have used more of Mm -hmm. was that level of of not just individuality and striking back against the urge to lump all of the sisters together that urge to self-define, but also maybe a little of that urge to to self-explain. Like as tiresome as exposition can be and as tiresome as people explaining their characters to you can be, like in a small dose like this, it's just so telling that she would come out and say to him, like, look, this has been my life and I'm not going to perpetuate that. I, I agree with you on that scene and as well as what, what I see is uh, Amy's big mic drop moment, which is uh, another scene between her and Lori when she's talking about marriage and like and giving up basically giving up her art you know in 
and and why marriage is an economic decision for women. And like that is a very 2019 scene. And that really feels like Gerwig sort of imposing this is what this story is about, you know, moment on it. And I don't mind it at all because Pew sells the hell out of it. Like Mm. that is just a, a fist pump of a scene. And I won't I won't hear otherwise. Tasha, I'm looking away no, no. Okay, okay, you, good. I, you, you like, don't you're not gonna hear anything that scene away from me you're not gonna hear yeah the problem is uh that 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 then just sort of raises the question of how many more scenes you're gonna say that about but no i i really love that sequence the only problem with it for me is that it feels like uh laurie still just doesn't really understand and it makes him seem as he sometimes seems throughout both this movie and maybe a little in the 94 movie, just an unworthy uh, partner yeah. for her. Yeah. I, I, since we're talking about the performances and casting, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sold on, on Chalamet as, as, as oh, Laurie. No. Still. I was a hundred percent sold. Yeah. I, I, I thought he was great as like their, their pet boy. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I, I get that. And I, and like he, he brings a different energy to Laurie that I think works in this movie. And like, I don't, I don't dislike it, but it's just, it's in the scenes with Amy because she just in this is uh, because Pew is so self-assured and does you know project as maybe older than than Amy is supposed to be but she just comes off as so much he he seems like a little boy in comparison Mm -hmm. to her and that's like not what their dynamic is at least or how it traditionally is so it just like it makes what ends up being their relationship feel honestly like it makes it feel like Amy's trading down more than more than it probably mm. should, you know. Um, I, I don't. He just comes off a little, like a little more of a of a wiener than than he <laughs> should be. With Ronan, though, I mean, the, the, the yeah. rejection scene with, with oh, yeah. Trisha oh, Ronan is, no. I think, it's the best scenes in the movie. Oh, See, no. I was that's that's the one that I was going to call out because oh, no. <laughs> to me, his the way that he takes that rejection just really emphasizes that wienertude. Like when he gives his little speech about like, he basically pulls an I'm a nice guy on her. Like he basically just seems like he's whining about how you're going to go love somebody else and it's not going to be me and I'm going to have to watch. It feels from the heart in a way that yeah. it doesn't in, in the 94 version. Oh, I see. I, it disagree. Feels I disagree. And, yeah, because I, I, I disliked it so much in the 2019. It does, I, mm. you know, I, I'll, I'll walk it back and say, yeah, Yes, I think you're right. I think it is from the heart, but it's from a wiener heart. It's from it's from just a, a place of very personal weeniness that's like, why don't you like me? I've been hanging around you this whole time waiting for you to like me. And in the other version of it, it honestly, it sounds regretful, but but almost like like he he understands like he he understands and is willing to accept that it's going to hurt him whereas in the 2019 version like he's still being hurt he's he's accepting how much it's going to hurt him but he's also like accusing her and blaming her at the same time and i'm not saying it wasn't powerful i'm not saying it wasn't effective i'm saying it made me not like either the character or maybe mm-hmm. chalamet's performance there it also omits a sort of line of reasoning that the 94 uh, movie kind of hammers on which is laurie's desire to be part of this family you know and it makes it more about joe not loving him the way he wants to be loved and specifically makes it about him overlooking her insisting that she does not want to be married and and not believing that and that is something that 
the movie is very interested in is Joe's spinsterhood. And maybe this is where we we need to talk about the ending, the ending yeah. and, and what it does there. But I uh, don't want to cut you off, Tasha. Well, before we talk about the ending leading up to it, it is almost a subsidiary thing. This honestly had not even occurred to me until I, I watched the film with my mother. And like two days later, she turned to me and said, do you think Joe was gay? Mm-hmm. It, it yeah, honestly no, this is a very queer uh, Joe that we have here. So, okay, so that's, is that your reading? Is is that like sort of your canonical reading? No, well, I, I or think, do you think it's an undercurrent? I, well, actually, I, I read a, I, I wish I could pull up the interview. Uh, I don't remember uh, where I read it, but uh, Gerwig talking about the gender flip stuff with Joe and Lori. I mean, Joe is a girl with a boy's name. Lori is a boy with a girl's name. And they are, con- and she specifically had them constantly swapping clothes with each other. And kind of like taking a hat or putting a scarf on, you know, the Joe giving him her ring, you know, and there's sort of this subtle but not too subtle playing with the the gender dynamic between them in a way that I think you can, it's easy to apply a queer reading to Joe, even though it doesn't necessarily take place anywhere in the narrative, but just sort of in that dynamic. I think if if she was going to play it that way. I want some some kind of hint of an actual attraction to a woman mm-hmm. because the like as interesting as it is as a reading it also takes us into that space of uh, like we're we're going back to the 1990s and it, you can have a gay character as long as they have no sexual or social life whatsoever. I, I think that might mess with the actual text too much. I think you can do a lot mm-hmm. in the subtext and I think a Joe who has boyish mannerisms and boyish interests and boyish clothes and who does not want to be married, I think that gives you enough of a sort of a gray zone, just kind of like it's more interesting than say, oh, actually, she's gay. You know, I think it's just kind of creating that ambiguity is, is itself an intriguing development without uh, doing harm to, to the source material. Yeah, that's fair. I And it's not like I would want Gerwig to insert a <laughs> blue is the warmest color style scene into the middle of all of this. I just, on some level, I think she's more interesting as a Dorothy Parker type, as as somebody who just wants her own world and her own writing and her own way of living, uh, than as a, a a queer character who can't have what she wants in that society, That's, which is a film we've seen so many times. Yeah, it sounds like a good opening to talk about the ending. Which, yeah, let's which talk about the ending. About, all about ambiguity and all yeah. about what Joe wants. And specifically, she doesn't want to marry off her heroine. Um even though the publisher demands it, as as the publisher demanded of Louisa May Alcott. And she doesn't, you know, at the same time, her character is going through its own, her own question about whether or not she will be married. And it's very possible to see the final scenes of this movie as her rewriting her own narrative uh, in a way that, that pleases uh, the audience, being the, whether it's the audience of the book or the audience watching the film, uh, but also sort of this possibility that uh, this is should be read on a meta level and none of this actually happened. Yeah. So what is a, you know, I, I don't think that the film is enough to make a definitive declaration one way or another, but as with the queerness we were talking about, I think the ambiguity is itself quite intriguing. Yeah, I mean, I definitely understand seeing this movie and being like, yeah, she and Barry get together. That's mm-hmm. that's just, and there's just this little like kind of wing to like, oh, it could have been otherwise. To my mind, like that is absolutely a meta moment that reworks the the ending. Like, I, I do not think they actually get together. There's a big moment of fourth wall breaking shortly before that, where Joe is kind of like talking to the camera. I can't remember specifically mm-hmm. what what it says, but it it comes 
like I said, pretty shortly before we get that conversation with her publisher. And I think that is sort of the indicator to us that we are breaking from the traditional story here. And here is a new reading of this. And I think why it feels so non-ambiguous to me is the characterization we get of Bear, of Frederick Bear in, in this uh, movie, which is not really romantic at mm. all. Like we talked last week about how Gabriel Byrne's performance kind of like makes you believe that relationship and it kind of sells a relationship that shouldn't work and it does. And the version of Bear we get here is just feels so aromantic, you know, and it makes this suggestion that this was just tagged on, pasted over the real ending in order to appease commercial interests, it sells that reading because it doesn't feel believable that Joe and Bear would get together in this version of the character. And it certainly doesn't feel believable they'd get together in this particular way, where it takes the whole family turning to her and saying, yeah. you're in love with this guy. Oh, and they're saying, what? And then they all jump into the carriage. Yeah, and the 19th century version of racing to the airport. It's exactly. A, it's, it's a very crocodile Dundee ending. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's, the, it's the player. comedically so, you know, over the top. The player. So, so then, so then we're taking all of him at that point of the film as being part of the meta text. Then, well, no, I think because he is at the end when we see the final shot of the film, we're kind of walking through the school and it's Marmy's birthday, I think. And Joe's bringing a cake, you know, and Mm. she kind of gathers all the remaining characters together and bears there. And she kind of walks by him and he just kind of gets like a congenial pat on the shoulder, you know, which to me indicates like she did invite him to, to teach at the school and he's there and he's just a teacher at the school. And that makes, that makes sense for that character because their relationship that we've seen has been much more about, him being a sort of teacher mentor presence to her. So I don't think it's that he's not in the story. I think it's that he's in the story in a non-romantic context. Yeah, I mean, it's a very clever, bold ending, and it kind of works. I mean, even even in its falseness, you kind of want to just, you kind of want to believe that this romantic scene is actually happening in the, with yeah. the rain and the umbrella and all that stuff. I want Joe to have whatever she wants. If that's selling down with a sort of condescending German guy, that's, that's fine too. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I think it's completely unbelievable and incredibly <laughs> cheesy and corny. And mm. the only thing that makes it work is just the sheer smugness on Joe's face as she tells Tracy Letts, basically uh, I'm willing to sell my heroine into into marriage for exactly this amount of money for this percentage. <laughs> she's For the copyright. She's wearing her sharp little bowler hat and telling him what's what. Yeah. And it's like, it makes everything ridiculous about that ending feel calculated as a joke, first between the film's audience and the film, and second as a joke between Joe and her readers. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, this is dreadful what are they doing and it literally took about an hour for the penny to drop for me <laughs> then i wanted to go back and rewatch the whole thing uh because it was just it, i think it's so easy to miss if you're looking at the movie on just a, a strictly surface level and it makes so much more sense if you read that as a kind of a comedically over-the-top meta ending where she's kind of screwing with people just by saying, oh, oh this is what, what you want is, uh, is soppy romance. Oh, I'm going to give it to you in spades, kids. Okay, and consider it in relation to the arc of Greta Gerwig's career, too, because Gerwig is someone who is sort of discovered or a part of the mumblecore movement, you know, micro indies of movies that were made for four-figure budgets. Here in and- Chicago. 
sometimes, sometimes here in Chicago, right? You know, in her first feature has got had a little bit of a budget, uh, Lady Bird, but this is a film for Sony. This is a big production for Sony, and it kind of, you know, you can see so much of her engaging with how Joe is feeling in that moment of just like how I'm now on this on the biggest possible stage how do I leverage that to get what I want while also giving the audience what it ostensibly wants as well so I think it it works very nicely in the context of the film but also in the context of Gerwig's career trajectory um, more generally well we talked a lot about this film but we still want to make some connections maybe something we haven't already made Uh if there's any left between this one and the 1994 version we'll be right back after the break I just I just feel I just feel like women they they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and I'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for I'm so sick of it but I'm I'm so lonely now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common and the things they do differently sometimes I think we all kind of feel the 94 version is a little more on board with specifically with Joe marrying Bear it plays up the romantic chemistry between Ryder and uh, Gabriel Byrne, which is quite strong in a way that this film doesn't, in fact, really want Satoya, as we were just speaking of, with the ambiguity of it. Do you feel that fundamentally changes the nature of the story? No, I mean, I think it just plays up different aspects of that character. So I feel like Joe marrying Bear in the 94 movie is kind of implied to come out of a desire for comfort, for stability, for maybe a father figure if you want mm. to go there because uh, Mr. March is so absent from, from much of the film. I think you could maybe put some sort of reading there if you were so inclined. But like it makes the marriage to Bear feel practical in a way that squares with Joe's desire to sort of return to this domestic coziness that informs her her warm memories of the past and also informs the the writing of little women you know the of telling this kind of story that the, about domestic joys and struggles you know as the the line in the new movie says so i think that in having her married to bear it just sort of draws out that element of the character whereas in the 2019 version in making that ambiguous and kind of leaning into the idea of spinsterhood and how it relates to like Joe's ambition. It just, it becomes about something different. It complicates the idea of marriage in really interesting and kind of modern ways that Little Women hasn't really done previously. And I think that's what's maybe most exciting about the 2019 version to me is Again, to go back to the Amy's mic drop moment about marriage being an economic proposition and the stuff we get with Grain Aunt March, who we haven't really talked about, Meryl Streep's character, but I think that's another big improvement that the 2019 film pulls off in sort of understanding her point of view and where it comes from and what its value is in, in this context. And that's, she's, she's awful, but she has a point. Exactly. Yeah. And she and Amy are linked in their in their worldview in a, in a very uh, distinct way that is, again, related to love and marriage. So I think the films are just 
interested in using romantic relationships, not necessarily even romantic relationships, because as the 2019 movie makes clear, it's not just about, you know, love. It's about, it's about much more than that for women. I mean, love and marriage are both big topics and you can draw out different thematic threads from them. And the two films just draw at different thematic threads from the same topic. And I don't think we should forget Meg in all of this too. It's right. Just as, as a strong point of contrast. Everyone forgets Meg. <laughs> I know, but, but I think, but I think though, for one, I think Gerwig, all four characters, you know, they, ha- they just have their moments and I think are as drawn out as they, they could be and should to, to the maximum effect. And uh, one of the things that this film does well with Meg is just to show how much she's embracing the hard way of living, you know, mm-hmm. just like, okay, this is what I want. And what I want is a struggle, you know, yeah. but a family, but you know, and I know this is, you know, and, and I'm not going to be able to get this afford these dresses in this way of, of life, but I'm going to trade that away for, you know, this thing of, of substance that is important to me. And, and, um, and it's a very different idea. It's a very different ambition um, than what, Joe has, but I think gives the films a certain amount of, of balance in that respect. I do think that if you if you do take the ending of the 2019 version as a sort of a fake ending, as the, the written ending to get the book published and get the money made, but you assume that Joe ends up on her own, then I think that the... Well, not on her own, still surrounded by her family and well, loved on, ones, Well, on her own in the sense unmarried. that she means when she says, I'm so lonely. I, I'm so lonely. Yeah. I, I don't want to get married. I want ambition. I want women to have all of these different choices, mm-hmm. but I'm still so lonely. Like, I, I do think that that's, uh, that in and of itself is a, an important moment in the movie that we should talk about. But I think the Gerwig version does kind of emphasize that there are a lot of different ways that you can go as a woman and in theory at least one of those ways is to not be married one of those ways is to not settle for someone or settle down with someone whereas by handing her this guy in the 94 version it just it does kind of feel like Lori was right all roads basically lead to marriage like eventually you're going to meet somebody who's the person for you and it feels a little pat by comparison one of the things we can talk about, we, we raised the fact that Aunt March, as played by Meryl Streep, is much more prominent in this. And, but so is Marmy, as played by Laura Dern, who really becomes, you can kind of see how all of her daughters um, are, are connected to her. I mean, they embody different aspects of her character and, and why she has been such a strong influence on, on them. And you get also get that great speech about how how she's always angry. She's angry she's all, all the time. Yeah, she's yeah. The, the Incredible Hulk moment. Where <laughs> yeah. says, the, the Sarandon version kind of kind of falls into this trap of, of playing her just sort of a, of, a, of a living saint. And, and uh, this this place where she's, she's a character who's making conscious choices to do good and, and sacrifice and, and think consider others as an ethical decision. And I think that's, and it also helps Laura Dern is nothing against Sarandon, who's a great actress, but I think Laura Dern just really is the right person to play that version of Marmy. Her whole thing about being angry, but trying to do good reminded me strangely strongly of A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, which also came out this Mm, year. Yeah. And the Mr. Rogers ethos of there are a lot of ways to express your anger, you know, pounding on a piano or uh, swimming as fast as you can or whatever. But, you know, ultimately you have to treat people with kindness and respect and help them. Like that's that's your job is to help other people. It it sounded like the two of them were pretty simpatico in their philosophy. 
while we're talking about Marmy, I just want to recommend a piece in The New Yorker that I thought was really great called Little Women and the Marmy Problem by Sarah Blackwood. And it kind of talks about the backgrounding of Marmy and how the inclusion of that line about her being so angry nearly every day of her life is remarkable. It's only the second adaptation ever actually include that line. And what it suggests about Marmy as a character and the the idea of suppressed anger and how it fits into the story, the story's feminist ideas, you know, and I can't uh, do justice to Blackwood's argument, but I'll just say you should check it out and that I do appreciate that we get a little bit more nuance to Marmy in the 2019 version while acknowledging that she is still a side player to her, her daughter's dramas. And that's sort of just a maybe a function of the, how the story is, is built, you know, but I think she and Aunt March also provide important counterpoints. You know, Marmy is much more sort of associated with giving up creature comforts for love, you know, like Mr. <laughs> Mr. March is, uh, has kind of left the family in genteel poverty, as, as, as they call it. And, and she presents as being okay with that. But there's also these little moments of anger or exasperation, particularly when <laughs> Mr. March is played by Bob Odenkirk enters the, the, the picture. And there's some, you know, little moments of tension between them that are very interesting, if not that drawn out. And then Aunt March is sort of, as I said, um, kind of tied to Amy and this idea of marriage as an economic proposition and her having to be the protector of her family through marriage and and all this. I think um, the two of them form just sort of bookends around the four sisters or create sort of a continuum, I guess, of the ideas about love and marriage that are inherent in this story. That said, I I really enjoyed Meryl Streep's uh, Great Aunt March in particular, but I could not understand for the life of me why she didn't just offer Joe money. Like basically, she presents this ideal of you know, a woman can get by in the world if she has her own money. She can make her own choices if she has her own money. And yet she seems so disdainful of Joe for not already being rich. I mean, mm-hmm. surely if she values the idea of women having some sort of independence if they're financially capable, she would see that maybe she would she would feel some sort of connection there. And the fact that she doesn't is interesting but i i don't think the film ever really does much to reveal why that is i think there's two things i think it's one it's just not the done thing but also she's a miser i mean i think she's she's kind of a i mean she's a it's a well-developed uh character but also with one foot in a stock character of someone who just will not share their money with you and, and kind of like uses the your lack of money as a source of control in your life uh, the lording over the fact that they have money over you and, and will not uh, uh, let a penny loose uh, under any circumstances sure but uh, you know when when she she knew she was old she knew she was going to die she leaves her the house rather than leaving her money like rather than well, giving her any money, sort though. of well I mean, that's true yeah. And and to some degree that it's also independence. But it's so easy to see why Lady Catherine and Pride and Prejudice makes those choices. Mm. It's pretty easy to see why Great Aunt March in the 94 version makes those choices. But the degree to which Meryl Streep's character just feels like sort of a warmer, more human, but also just like slyer and more self-satisfied with where she's managed to get herself in life kind of character just kept raising the question for me, like, why doesn't she respect Joe's independence? Like, even if she's not willing to financially back it, why is she so disgusted by it? Hmm. 
I can't say for sure, but I also wonder if to the question of why didn't she just leave Joe her money, if it might have something to do with what Amy is talking about in that monologue I've mentioned a couple times now, if any money she left her would become her husband's, you know, like, like, I don't know the specifics of ownership within within marriage during this time period. But I think it's possible that Aunt March didn't want to just give a lump sum of money because it there's a chance that Joe wouldn't be able to claim it as hers. Maybe. I mean, she seems most likely of all of the March girls to be able to hang on to it without having to pass it over yeah. to her husband. But also, she's capable of making her own money, which is another maybe that's a, a way we can talk about uh, another connection of talent, ambition, and achievement. Obviously, Joe is the prodigy, I guess, of the family, but all of four of them have talents of their own. You know, Mm -hmm. Beth is a piano player. Amy is an artist. Meg is a talented actress. You could also argue that Meg is uh, very talented at the domestic arts, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, but Joe is the only one who's able to actually achieve something with that talent. And I think or one of the things I was struck by of the 2019 version's portrayal of Amy is that I think we get a better sense of her talent as an artist. In the like in the 94 version, what we see her like painting a flower on a teacup mm-hmm. and making a little sketch of the their home to bring back as a gift. You know, there's not it's sort of like art is one of the womanly arts, you, you know, uh, a distraction. And in the 2019 version, I think we're given clues of like Amy's actually really good. Like if she were a Joe type, she may have actually chosen the the same route as Joe and been able to become famous for her art, but that's not the route she chose. And I, that's much more of an explicit choice on her part, I feel. Oh, I don't think that's true. I mean, that same amazing sequence where right. she, she talks about choices. She says she's, she just doesn't have the talent. She's yeah, not going to be some common right. jobber. Sure. sure. But... I think that's her telling herself that because earlier we have that scene of her like art lessons in in Paris, you know, when we see her painting and then she looks over to the person next to her and it's like a paint by numbers. It's just like a really sad version of of what Amy's making, you know, like so much of the way I think it's, it's ambiguous, you know, and there, there is something to just accepting that you are not talented enough. You you're not good enough, but Joe by contrast, is also someone who is told that her stories are not this enough or not that enough and wants it enough to pivot, to change course, to do what needs to be done to make money and to be successful, you know, and that was sort of Louisa May Alcott's thing, too, is she was a paid writer who, like, she was about making money, you know, she churned stuff out to make money. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah, right, right. She did, she did all but, kinds of like like ranked lists. Yeah, and like pa- patron saint of freelancers, yeah. Louisa May Alcott. Right? I mean, Grover brings in more of Alcott's autobiographical details in this mm-hmm. as well. And I think in some interesting ways, too, they, she really, there's more emphasis in her version about Joe actually earning money in a, that's meaningful to her family and, mm-hmm. and to her that, that helps them be self-sufficient. And also, like, in the 94 version, it's like, oh, how nice. You, you, you printed my book for me. And this was very much her taking yeah. that in her own hands to establish a future for herself. And, and the whole thing with the copyright is something that Alcott actually did as well. One thing I do appreciate about the Gory version, though, is I think that all four sisters are very, their ambitions, their essence is very well uh, drawn out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and very affectingly drawn out. Um, you, know, you get he, Meg as an actress so much more than like I, I don't mm-hmm. think I ever remembered that Meg was a good actress because there's like one line about it in the '94 film, and and sort of the implication that maybe we only know that from like how well she reads the lines that Joe's written yeah. for, like almost like she's patting her on the head, like 
we've three of the three of the members of this family have an art so like of course we've got to like compliment meg's right the one thing meg can do and it, it just it feels so much more vivid in the 2019 version and i think i mean even something like you know beth is there to die i guess <laughs> but like but you know that she's also there to win over chris cooper yeah, no, but that, that relationship, it was delightful. Is, that yeah. relationship is just so powerful. Like, yeah, you know, when, when that's the you know the one the one real choke up moment of the movie for me is you know when she does die and he's he can't bring himself to go in the house. It's just mm-hmm. like, scene with so, Joe is devastating. Yeah, yeah, boy, that is so strong. And the, the, Chris Cooper is just phenomenal. In that. It's this very small but affecting role. I just uh, yeah, this is the, the whole thing with this movie is just like there isn't a part of it that just hasn't been you know turned up to. 11 or something that just it hasn't just isn't vivid it's just so well done I, I will say this all I, across the board I, I watched this movie and then I watched it again and then I watched the 94 version and I, I think it's a very good movie but the whole time I was watching it's like I kind of wish I was watching the version <laughs> I hate to feel that way because yeah. I think it's really good and just you know it's just being overshadowed by much more ambitious treatment of the same material yeah mm-hmm. I mean I'm Shirley Gerwig drew from the 94 version quite a bit you know that's that's a but it does it ends up feeling like kind of a bit of a rough draft or a or a you know a a starter kit for what what she ends up doing with it before we move on from the connection of talent ambition and achievement and beth i do want to highlight another beth and mr lawrence moment from the 2019 film where he just listens to her play Mm. he like sits down on the steps and is sort of like overcome listening to her play and i think in the context of a story that is sort of dwelling on what do you do with talent in the in the context of this society it's a nice moment of seeing talent on display divorced from ambition or achievement just like the bringing beauty or joy into someone's life through your talent divorced of a, a monetary element you know and that's a interesting contrast to joe and it it's a purely emotional moment um, in a movie that has a lot to sort of intellectually mull over, I think. I'm thinking again of the piano, but I think Bear's mo- moment is pretty powerful too with that. You know, oh, we, yeah. There's, there's, you know, we he- we're heading into this part of the film that becomes sort of deliberately artificial, but that isn't artificial mm-hmm. when, he, when, he, when he plays that piano for them um, that's a very emotional moment yeah I li- yeah i like when he says i don't wish to offend that was a very likable moment yeah. you know like the recognition of like this could upset someone me doing this he's, a, he's not all bad this this bear you know he's I, very I, good yeah he, what does he do what does he do that's bad he insults he, joe yeah yeah he's harsh but you know I don't, I don't think he's harsh in either version i think in both versions it definitely comes across that his great sin is in telling her something that she knows to be true, which is that she's not writing what she wants to be writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think if anyone, though, I expect you to respond even more negatively because I was thinking this is someone who just disrespects genre fiction, you know? <laughs> yeah, he disrespects genre fiction, but I, I just assume that it comes across. Maybe I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt here, but it just seems to me that given that it's not where she starts, like that she writes things and, and she's told, uh, you know, go away and come back with something, something salacious and, and bloody and violent. And like she throws herself into it and she's very excited to make money. But I don't know that it ever comes across that she's actively excited to be writing about vampires or whatever the heck it is. And yeah. uh, when, when he says vamp- vampires, this is the thing that interests you like in the in the 94 version in particular he doesn't even say like this isn't up to snuff he's just like oh this is 
this is something you love. Yeah, he's, and he's I, saying, I don't traffic with these with these monsters and uh, fantastic I concepts. I didn't so read it that way. Oh. I didn't read it that way. I read it. I read it more as I'm trying very hard to like this, but I'm not sure I believe that you do. Mm. And all he does is ask, and she she reacts with such vehemence. And I think it's because on some level, it's not what she wants to be writing. And I think that comes through in the way that everybody does respond to what she eventually writes, which is what she wants to be writing. She's a pioneering sci-fi, female sci-fi <laughs> fantasy writer, yeah. whose talents are being channeled to, to these domestic tales. Yeah. Incidentally, I think a, a huge interesting uh, diversion between the two movies regarding talent and ambition is the difference between the guy who hand-waved away your last manuscript with no interest took the new one and couldn't put it down and wouldn't give it back mm-hmm. versus no, he didn't like this one either. And then his daughters got mm-hmm. a hold of it mm-hmm. and wouldn't let it go. Nice I, touch. I, yeah. I think, yeah, putting that in the hand of again, young women and sort of making the contrast between the cynical jaded publisher who is so sure he knows everything about what sells versus the actual readers is just a really vivid choice. Yeah. Before we move on from Bear and that uh, sort of moment between him and Joe, I think where he's questioning her writing, like I think we are supposed to take that as a moment of like insecurity and immaturity on, on, on Joe's part, her reaction. What he did do that really annoyed me in the 2019 version is give her a bunch of Shakespeare and say, study this so you learn how to write character. Yeah, and, in the, and in the 94 version, it's made very explicit that like Joe has already read Shakespeare. Sure. You know, and, and like she's excited to see his books because she already knows some of these books. Um, so that was sort of the the moment of Bear being a, a real jerk that stood out to me in the 2019 version. That. The bit where she, he he does talk about her actual work reminded me so much of John Cassavetes talking to Scorsese after Boxcar Bertha mm, when, he go, yeah. when, he, when he said, you just spent two years of your life making a piece of shit. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't you have anything? You shouldn't be doing this. You should be doing something else. And, and that was what ended up, you know, Mean Streets were sort of born out of that moment of just like, this is not the sort of stuff you should be making. You you need to make personal films. Again, Scorsese would have been a great B-movie director. <laughs> and yet the snobs of the world pushed him in this, this know, personal direction, yeah. personal expression. Guys, stop bringing Scorsese into our Little Women discussion. <laughs> he does not belong here. You, I wonder right, if anybody's asked side. Martin Scorsese what he thinks about the Little Women movies and whether they're theme park they, rides. Or they are a franchise. The, one could argue the original <laughs> franchise. Yeah, yes, indeed. <laughs> So we talked about in the 94 version about uh, we were all kind of annoyed at the moment when uh, Lori chastised Meg for, for daring to, to drink champagne. And it, it, you get a, a, a repeat of that in this one, but it feels a little different. You know, it, it's tied up with the temperance movement, which was, of course, tied up with women's uh, suffrage, which, of course, tied up with social justice movements uh, of the time as well. So, uh, you know, how do we feel like that, that virtue is depicted in these? It seems like in both of them, but especially in the Gerwig version, virtue is tied to actually making a change in the world. Mm-hmm. I think one big difference in the two is just how much we see of the Hummels. In the 2019 version, when they take their breakfast to the Hummels, like when they have that moment of, all right, it's actually bad that we have all of these wonderful things we're excited about and they have nothing and we're just going to try to sit here and enjoy it anyway. And they, they pack up the breakfast and take it off. We actually see how the Hummels are living and, and what they look like and what this 
means for them. And we see them interacting with the Hummels. And it, it feels so much more real in terms of virtue and charity than the 94 version, where we don't see that moment at all. And then we only very briefly and from the outside, see the Hummels at all. They feel a lot realer in the 2019 version, because they have more presence because they're on screen more and because they're just they interact with the characters that, that we're meant to care about. And it feels much less like, like stories like this, and and in Austin as well, just wave the, the word charity around as one of the most important things you can do, but also just a very abstract concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and here it becomes very visceral and very personal in terms of what they're doing for these very specific people who desperately need them. You also get Marmy supporting the war effort, which we don't mm-hmm. see in the 94 version either. We get the, the thing with the soldiers limping along while the family is like offering them water sure, sure. that centers a little more on Amy but we we do get her interacting with a, with a black woman and talking about how ashamed she is of her country mm-hmm. which again feels like a super 2019 yes, touch for sure there's a, a shot in the 2019 version that I was really struck by. It's uh, is it early? In, yeah, it's early in the film. It's the it's Chris, it's the first Christmas day when they take their their breakfast to the Hummels. And you know, in the 94 film, it's the here we come a wassailing. But in the 2019 version, it, it, it's similar. You know, it's the four of them kind of marching through the snow with their their bags, but they walk by a church as they're doing it that other people are going into, so presumably for Christmas mass or or whatever. You know, and they just like walk they walk by it and it really made me realize that for as much as this story is centered on, you know, goodness and and virtue, it's really divorced from religion for a, a large part. I mean, Mr. March is a minister, but there's no real sense of there being a church that is at the center of their lives. Like goodness is their is their church. It's their it's their religion. And that's I don't really know enough about American transcendentalism, but what I do understand of it, that seems to be sort of what that shot is getting at is sort of the uh, pursuit of goodness and the belief that people are inherently good and sort of pursuing that in the face of societal pressures to be otherwise doing that outside of a, the structures of a of an organized religion is i think what that shot is maybe implying a little bit there they're just very good those march sisters and they're immediately <laughs> rewarded for their charity by an even better christmas breakfast <laughs> when they get home <laughs> which i i found pretty amusing <laughs> but i mean they're also rewarded for their charity with beth's death i mean yeah. there there is mm-hmm. a direct straight line between helping the hummels and her getting sick and then ultimately dying it's just vicious in this one too because she gets the piano the moment she comes back from yeah. the hummels with the disease it's going to kill her eventually mm. yeah spoiler that, beth that, dies that, everyone yeah, it, doesn't, it, it <laughs> does or, not the uh, original spoiler pay to be charitable <laughs> that's the, that's the subscribe to our here. patreon everyone <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe to our Patreon, get scarlet fever, and die. Unless you had it as a kid, in which case you're fine. What, what is what is our scarlet fever level? Uh, is, is that, is that $8 a month? $10 a month, and you have immunity from scarlet fever in the year 2020. Well, immunity from scarlet you. fever like delivered to you through our Patreon. Like right. we, we can't guarantee immunity from all scarlet fever gotten through other Patreons or even just other podcasts. No, I mean, Keith will just attach the virus to the newsletter, right? That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm not sure what we can add to that 
beyond this, which is that Gillian Armstrong's 1994 version of Little Women is widely available on Blu-ray and DVD and streaming services. And Gerwig's Little Women is currently in theaters and will likely be there for, for a while. I think this will, will stretch out through the awards season. Yeah, it's a hit. And, and, and uh, I think it's going to be talked about and should be talked about in, in awards discussions, right? Right? I hope so. I hope so. All right. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, it's the new year, and my New Year's resolution is to not feel bad about recommending television shows on this film podcast (laughs) because I I am a TV editor, and it is a a large part of my job. So I am going to uh, not recommend a film. I'm going to recommend a TV show, but one that I thought about a lot after watching Gerwig's Little Women for many reasons. Uh, Chief among them is that it concerns another female writer who was a contemporary of Louisa May Alcott, but whose life and career took a vastly different shape. Uh, And the series takes a vastly different shape from Little Women while still dwelling on many of the same issues regarding female independence and marriage and ambition in the mid-19th century. Uh, I'm talking about Dickinson, which debuted on Apple TV Plus a couple months back and honestly didn't make a huge splash in the culture, but it has definitely stuck with me for its uh, highly distinctive approach to its subject who is, as you might guess from the name and from my long-winded setup, (laughs) is the American poet Emily Dickinson, played here as a teenager by Haley Steinfeld. Dickinson also reminds me a little bit of Ryan Johnson's Brick, another movie we discussed recently, and that it takes a story that's associated with a specific genre, in this case a period biopic, and places it in the context of a high school coming-of-age story. Uh, So this version of Emily Dickinson, while wearing the dress and following the conventions of the mid-1800s, talks and acts a lot like a teenager circa the 2010s. There's honestly not a whole lot of distance character-wise between Steinfeld's Dickinson and her character in Edge of Seventeen. A lot of the humor, and especially the music, also lean into more modern-day sensibilities, which allows for an interesting way into exploring the strictures placed upon women and their relationships with both men and women. And yes, the show explores the more than just a friendship between Emily and Sue Gilbert, her best friend and her brother's fiancé. Uh, And given the context in which I'm recommending the show, I'd be remiss not to mention a delightful cameo appearance by one Louisa May Alcott, played by Zosha Mamet, who appears late in the season to function as a sort of profit-obsessed, highly ambitious counterpoint to Emily. Uh, And while this is not related to our Little Women discussion, I also have to shout out a similarly great appearance by John Mulaney as a highly narcissistic Henry David Thoreau, uh, who was living and working in Concord uh, around the same time as Alcott. There are lots of little unexpected delights like that in Dickinson, along with some admittedly jarring moments as a result of its uh, very distinctive tone, uh, which it mostly manages well thanks to the involvement of filmmakers like David Gordon Green and Lynn Shelton behind the camera. Uh, it's not a perfect show, but it is certainly an interesting one. And if you find yourself on its wavelength, it's a sort of series you can power through in just a few hours. Uh, so, you know, maybe worth signing up for the free week of Apple TV Plus and checking it out if you haven't already. Dickinson, did any of you? Well, watch it. No, yeah, don't I don't have Apple TV. Or Apple, I don't have Apple Plus, but but that was the one. If I had it, I would I'd, I'd beeline right to it because yeah. I'd heard it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean it's it's ten episodes. They're under a half hour each. That's Ooh, that's five like that's that. five hours. You can do that in the in the free week of Apple TV Plus without having to actually oh, sign point. up for it. Good point. So you know. Eventually, they're going to put something out that's going to be unmissable, and I'll have to have to pay. I'll just have to get nickel and dime to death by all these streaming services. Well, Scott, how about you? What do you got for us? Oh, uh, so so last uh, year I wrote a piece for 
uh, The Guardian about uh, James Cameron's The Abyss, which is uh, turned 30. And I, I had to uh, I had to watch it through a fairly creative means <laughs> um, because it's been really really hard to find, despite being directed by James Cameron, being a, a notoriously expensive and difficult production, and despite having a significant following and you know and, and a lot of appreciators, you know, myself included. Um, and so quietly and strangely, uh, HBO has has put. Uh, this a streaming version of a new 4K transfer onto HBO Now, HBO Go, whatever HBO you have, and they've done it in its original aspect ratio, which is quite important, two, three, five to one, because in the past, you, those past kind of blue, uh, you know, laserdisc versions were. What are the panels? They weren't painted scanning. No, not, an, like, not anamorphic though. I mean, right? If, it was like watch, a, in other words, you, if you watch the DVD version, you'd be watching it on a very small window within your your big. Within your big screen. yeah yeah it's 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 complicated to get into but uh, I, I don't want to describe it but I do think the film for all of its flaws and of course it does have many flaws has a lot of merit for one its effects are still extraordinary they have not worn out or become less impressive over time uh, except for maybe the ending which which was also even at the time a little bit tacky and then it also has a level of emotion that's so heightened so powerful and it's driven home by these performances by mary elizabeth master antonio and ed harris as exes who happen to come together on this mission to figure out what happened to this uh, nuclear sub that's sunk to the bottom of the ocean and it's a rescue mission and a mystery uh, you know about aliens who also happen to have a message to send to humanity the director's cut spells that message out very clearly uh it also has this extraordinary tidal wave sequence that's gone from the theatrical version the version on hbo is the theatrical version which i don't prefer i should do prefer the longer cut lumps in all um but i take it on i actually did a contrast a compare contrast between two versions okay very late in the run of the dissolve and and my, my take on it is like they're both interesting i think really remarkable films and they both are have really serious flaws but they're different flaws in each version it's kind <laughs> yeah. of fascinating to watch <laughs> yeah them back to back. no right it's it definitely it's so heavy-handed the longer version mm-hmm. um but it's you know also nuclear but, war but it's yeah <laughs> yeah i mean he's not uh, cameron's not just not a subtle uh writer and he was obsessed with n- the nuclear potential was something that was important to him something he was obsessed over in the terminator films uh, terminator 2 especially and and uh so he has that in there not in a delicate way i mean nothing about this film is delicate and, the, and if you look at here production stories i mean they kind of turn your stomach uh his behavior on the set his is you know it was pretty abusive to say the least but boy it's a really gorgeous movie and it's kind of nice to have it back so it's on hbo uh if you're a subscriber and it's just been kind of quietly kind of thrown up there it's crazy you know you think mm-hmm. this would be an event but we yeah. talked about it for years and just there it there. there it is yeah. yeah keith what about you i have another sort of um bush era <laughs> long hard to see film which is the Criterion Collection has put out the full version of Vim Vendors Until the End of the World, which mm. I you know, briefly describe it. Uh, this was Vendors, who was famous for, for doing road movies. Um, he This was supposed to be his ultimate road movie, and it was filmed uh, all over the globe and, and you know across several continents and, and even more countries. And it uh, the short version is it was going to be a, a big deal movie, and then it kind of just 
played a few theaters and disappeared. I mean, it was a huge flop. Uh, and it was released in a much shorter cut, uh, a, a mere, in the U.S. version, uh, a mere 158 minutes. Um, and, and so... At a time when this was not a usual practice, he kind of spirited away his own cut of the film, uh, and I believe his own his own negative, and started showing it, you know, as early as as, as the mid '90s. Started showing this full version in museums and stuff, and it's kind of slowly resurfaced over the years. This is by far the the, the widest it's been available. All. Almost five hours of it. It's a 287-minute director's cut uh, on Blu-ray. It's a fascinating movie. It's not, again, it is a movie, uh, having seen the shorter, it's a movie that's not perfect in any way. We're talking about a lot of not, <laughs> not perfect stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I saw the the theatrical version uh, on home video at some point in the 90s and, and barely remembered anything of it. And then this really made a deep impression. The plot briefly uh, set it in the far off year of 1999, uh, in which uh, you know a satellite re-entering the atmosphere threatens an apocalyptic event, uh, and so on and so forth. But, it, but that's kind of background noise. It's really about a bunch of characters traveling around the world um, as spurred on by by a character played by William Hurt, whose father, played by Max von Sydow, uh, has developed a machine to record dreams. That'll kind of give you a sense of it's an odd movie. It's it's a very odd movie, and and, and but uh, one I really kind of sunk into and, and really quite uh, was quite taken with in this longer version. A couple other things. Uh, it's shot by the late great Robbie Mueller, so mm-hmm. one of the best cinematographers of all time, and Vendor's regular collaborator. Although I believe this is their last or close to the last thing they worked on together. He he said that their relationship frayed in making this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you want to see one of the, you know the, the great Robbie Mueller shooting all over the globe. And there's beautiful, like, you know, Australian outback scenes and, and, and Japan and San Francisco and you name it. He shot it. He shoots it. The other thing is it, the, the one part of the film that was successful at the time of this was the soundtrack, yeah. which was basically, yeah. you know, vendors calling in favors from all his favorite bands. So it's got songs from the Talking Heads, Lou Reed, R.A.M., Elvis Costello. Patty Smith, uh, at a time when she really wasn't recording very much at all, you too, whose uh, whose uh, song "Until the End of the World" uh, gave the film its title and ended up on their much more widely heard album "Achtung Baby." So, anyway, I recommend it. Carve out the time. I watched it over two nights because you know five hours is a long time to watch. Uh, What's sitting, man? What's your problem? Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> anyway, but I, I would uh, certainly. Um, certainly uh, recommend seeking this out. Tasha, how about you? If I remember correctly, the way he got to that soundtrack was by going to all of his bands and asking them to try to write a mm-hmm. song that was what they thought they would be doing in f- like 15 Ni- years 1999 so and this was and, you know this was probably around 89 90 when he's approaching people for this right so I, I i remember at the time thinking i i don't know if any of these given songs are necessarily representative of what any of these bands will be doing in 10 years but listening to them try was fascinating and the the songs themselves, it's just an unbeatable soundtrack. Mm-hmm. We listened to it obsessively when it, it came out. College radio hit at the time. Yeah. And the other thing is also, it, it is like the soundtrack, it is quite interesting to see a late 80s, early 90s vision of what the year 1999 would look like. I think this movie was the first time I ever saw an H- in, in HGTV, uh, which figured pretty prominently. And used a lot of digital photography and digital imagery and in some really expressionistic ways and, and hmm. yeah it's it's good stuff well apparently the very first version of it was 20 hours long when do we get that version <laughs> <laughs> I, i'm not sure there's a, a blu-ray set uh, large enough to hold uh, that <laughs> 
well, for myself, I've got uh, two things I'll bring up. Just briefly, since we touched on uh, Merchant Ivory films and Howard's End um, in passing, I'm just going to bring up the fact that Howard's End is my favorite of the Merchant Ivory mm. films. Um, Room of a View is right up there, and, and there are quite a few others that are really quite good. The Remains, the remains of the Day? Remains of the Day. Okay. Although, I will, uh? say, I will say Remains of the Day, I found... Kind of, kind no. of, kind of dry at the time, and then I went and read the book, uh-huh. and the book is spectacular. It's the exact same content, but it's just I didn't realize that it was a comedy, and I I've been meaning to revisit the um, the movie in the light of having read the Ishiguro novel uh, just forever, okay. and I I just haven't gotten around to it. But Howard's End is uh, it stars Emma Thompson and. Vanessa Redgrave and Helena Bonham Carter and uh, Anthony Hopkins. And it's much like Little Women. There's a lot of stuff going on with kind of class and marriage. And in this case, uh, much more about inheritance, um, but a great deal about uh, charity and helping the poor and social responsibility and, and goodness. But it's just, it's a very vivid story, vivid in a way that a lot of those Merchant Ivory films are too respectable to be. And it uh, it's one of the few movies that I can remember uh, making me bawl in the theater. <laughs> and um, I was clutching my husband, who was also bawling in the theater. So there, there you go. It was... Uh, it's possible. It's a heartbreaker. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, it's proof that I'm not entirely dead inside. <laughs> um, Howard's End is actually streaming on Netflix. So it's a, a pretty easy lift if you want to check it out. If if you are interested in costume dramas, adaptations of classic books, it was an E.M. Forster novel, or that just kind of like very vivid uh, female forward kind of uh, classical story. But the film that I was actually going to recommend uh, for this one around this time around, much more recent, uh, is Brittany Runs a Marathon. Hmm. Jennifer, did you bring this up at some point? No, no. Um, I think we talked about possibly doing a, it as a pairing. But uh, so we may have talked about it in that context. But I still have to see it. So go yeah, ahead. Yeah, it was uh, one of those movies that like toward the end of the year when I was doing my film catch up for, for top 10 lists and, uh, and whatnot, it just kept coming up as a kind of a left field recommendation. And it didn't end up making my short list. But I found it memorable in a way that I found a few movies memorable this year. It's about a New York woman who decides that she's going to run in the New York Marathon. And she's she's overweight. She doesn't have a lot of focus in her life. She's reached an age where all of her friends seem to be figuring out what they want to do and are moving away from uh, like self-indulgence in the party scene and dead-end jobs and moving in the direction of marriage and kids and careers. And she feels very left behind. And this is the thing that she kind of seizes on as what's going to like pull her out of her slump and make her prove herself. So it's a little bit of a, an inspirational weight loss picture until it's not. It takes kind of a, a hard turn towards the middle and becomes something else entirely. And it's the something else that just makes it very surprising. It is in in many ways kind of a conventional uplift story, but it's also, it edges into the realm of like all those Judd Apatow man-child movies where you've got a comedy about kind of a loser and his loser friends and the loser like realizes that he needs to grow up for whatever reason. This kind of feels like a bit of a gender-swapped version of that with her kind of looking around herself and saying, 
you know, like all of this stuff that I've been doing my entire life, it just isn't very adult and doesn't work for me. And it involves like shedding some toxic relationships and making some new ones and seeing herself differently. It's a comedy. It's very noticeably a comedy, but it's also got pretty strong dramatic elements. And Jillian Bell is just really memorable Mm. in the central world. There are a lot of nits that I would pick with this movie, particularly about what kind of turns into its central romance. And there's certainly a lot of like body issue stuff that might be triggering for some people or just offensive to some people because of the particular tack it takes. But in some ways, it's it's one of the most honest movies I've seen in a long time about what it's like to be a woman in the world and have a body, a body of any type, and to be judged for it and to feel like what it looks like in any given moment controls how you're seen romantically, how you're seen socially, how you see your yourself, how you respond to other people. It's brutally honest in some ways. It's extremely comedically over the top in other ways. And it sometimes it meets in the middle. I would say it's a fairly flawed movie in some ways, but it's also just trying both for a type of comedy and a type of honesty you just don't see often. It's kind of remarkable. I'm I'm glad to hear you speak uh, positively of it because it's it's one that I I keep hovering over on you know like Amazon new releases or whatever I think it's on it's, it's on Prime, Prime, yeah. Prime now I'm, I'm wary of it for some of the the reasons you you lay out so it's good to hear you sort of talk through those and uh, I'm definitely going to check it out soon I think yeah a friend of mine a few days after I saw it a friend of mine uh, tweeted that she was done having any discussions whatsoever with her body with anybody that wasn't either a close friend or a medical professional Mm -hmm. and that anybody else that tried was going to get a full on banshee shriek in the face. (laughs) And I suggested that she watch the film and then she sat down and watched it and kind of live tweeted it at me. Oh wow. Up to and including the parts where she started crying. And that was what convinced me that I, I needed to, to put some thoughts about this film out in the world because it really is, you know, we talk so much about representation It's a representation of something I don't see represented very often, which is both the the difficulties of weight loss and just the experience around it delivered in a way that feels a lot, both a lot realer than uh, the normal cinematic stories and in some ways uh, a lot more like heightened and comedic in a way that makes it like okay to talk about these things. Plus Jillian Bell, who is kind of great in everything I've seen her and even things that are not good. So <laughs> yeah, she's definitely a hoot. So uh, Brittany runs a marathon. It's uh, one of those Amazon movies uh, that played in theaters for five minutes and is now on Amazon Prime. Forever. If you Yeah, if you happen <laughs> to have a subscription to Amazon Prime. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next panel will come out January 28th and February 4th. Tasha, what's coming up next? Sam Mendez and famed cinematographer Roger Deakins took an unusual tack with their World War I drama 1917, and it paid off in a hefty roster of Oscar nominations. The film is a personal, grunts-eye, boots-on-the-ground view of the war, stitched together into what appears to be a single continuous shot. There's a strong contrast, though, between 1917 and Peter Weir's 1981 drama Gallipoli, which is also a World War I drama that gets down into the trenches with the men. But where 1917 is a seamless trip, Gallipoli chops its story up into short, episodic snippets that all lead in the same tragic direction. And where 1917 drops its characters into the action with no backstory or setup, Gallipoli is almost all backstory and setup, building a relationship between two young Australian men who end up on the battlefield together. 
And yet both films have a lot of similarities when it comes to the friendships between men, the call to duty in combat, the horror of trench warfare, and the failure of leadership. We'll look at the similarities between 1917 and Gallipoli up next. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Little Women and Little Women and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can read my writing there and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve? I am the WDTV editor at Vulture.com and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Keith? I am a freelance writer and I'm. you can find my work at Vulture. You can find my work at The Ringer. You can find my work occasionally at Polygon. You can find my work at Fangoria. You can find my work at Mel Magazine. Where can you uh, find your work? Exactly. And I'm supposed to be working on a book, too. Scott, how about you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at KFIPS3000. Scott, how about you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in New York Times and NPR, The Ringer. Uh, I had had some pretty substantial things there. Vulture. I have some pretty big things starting in the beginning of the year. So that people will have encountered or already or, or will encounter soon. Um, so, yeah, keep them busy, hopefully, um, into 2020. You can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. That includes a newsletter and bonus episodes. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing the podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Thank you.